When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma trip to Texas. So go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Introducing Celebration Key, your key to paradise. Unlock Carnival's all-new exclusive destination at Grand Bahama, where you can dive into clear lagoons, try all the water sports, or unwind on a mile-long pristine beach with breathtaking sunset views. This vacation paradise has it all. Celebration Key, welcoming guests in summer 2025. Carnival, choose fun. Copyright 2024, Carnival Corporation. All rights reserved. Ships Registry, the Bahamas and Panama. The Bowery Boys, episode 180. The Chelsea Piers and the era of the Ocean Liners. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys are brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of audiobook entertainment. For a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial, go to audibletrial.com slash boweryboys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. We are recording this show on April 14th, 2015. 103 years ago today, the Titanic sank in the Atlantic Ocean, felled by an iceberg. Its intended destination is the subject of today's show, the Chelsea Piers. The Chelsea Piers are interesting as a subject because they exist today as a commercial entity of a number of piers that have been reworked into a sort of entertainment and recreational facility. Yeah, today it's where you go to practice your gymnastics or doing a little golf putting. But we're going to take you back over a hundred years, and even before that, when it was something quite different. In fact, in the beginning of the 20th century, the Chelsea Piers was a structure containing nine piers that was revolutionary in the way that it handled transatlantic ocean liners. During the Gilded Age, the ocean liner was the Grand Hotel of the Sea and was a vessel both of the wealthy classes to experience transatlantic travel and for those new immigrants who traveled below decks to come to America for the first time. So in today's show, we're not just talking about the Chelsea Piers, certainly not the thing that exists today, <laughs> although we'll get to that sure. story later. Uh, but we'll be talking about the building that opened in 1910, those great new piers, but also this era in New York and world history in which people took to the seas when getting from Europe to the U.S. And how they crammed this entire industry here along the very crowded docks of Manhattan. And Greg, I'm also going to tell you a story that surprised me, because in this story, we have a rare instance in which Manhattan was geographically slimmed down to accommodate the construction of something. How often does that happen? No, virtually never. Well, in this case, the island did slim down, and there's a vestige of a long-disappeared avenue, 13th Avenue, that one can visit today when walking along the Chelsea Piers. And finally, we'll tell you about one passenger ship that left Chelsea Piers 100 years ago this year on a doomed voyage and a victim of the early days of World War I. So, anchors away as we charter through the history of the Chelsea Piers and the age of the ocean liner. Before we embark on this voyage, uh, just situate us. Tell us where we're starting the show here. Well, we're talking about the piers, right? So we're talking about the, the Chelsea piers, but we're also talking about sort of the piers of lower Manhattan in general. 
In particular, the Hudson River Piers, or to use the old romantic parlance of the day, the North River Piers. Right. And as we'll be getting into in some detail, there were piers that were all along both sides of Lower Manhattan, along the East River and along the North River, the Hudson River. And in today's show, we're mostly focusing on the nine piers that ran from West 12th Street up to 23rd Street. Not just the four piers that are part of today's Chelsea Pier complex. Because the original building was much larger. It was much longer than it is today, right. And just in terms of pier numbers, because this is kind of confusing, the numbers start at the tip of Manhattan and go north. So they count up. So when we're talking about Pier 54, we're not referring to a pier that's at 54th Street. In fact, Pier 54 is much, much lower beneath 14th Street. Today's Chelsea Piers, just to situate us, comprise Piers 59, 60, and 61, and Pier 62 is a park, but they kind of claim that as well. I headed off down there a couple days ago, as did you, Mm -hmm. to sort of explore the remnants. It's interesting because these are places that, you know, as you go up and down the Greenway, the Hudson River Greenway that's there today... You're used to looking out into the Hudson River and seeing the old pilings, the the, the, the wood the sticking remnants, up. The ruins. Yes, the wood sticking out of the, the Hudson River that once supported some of the piers that have since disappeared. But I never really knew until we started researching this show which of these piers were part of Chelsea Piers. I think I even talked about the Chelsea Piers as sort of... All of, all of them, them, actually, right? No, but it was a specific dedicated number of peers. But all the peers up and down were, of course, uh, devoted and in the service of various uh, sea and cargo vessels. For example, if you would start at West 12th Street, uh, there's a pier that's Pier 51. It's today a playground, so kids are out there playing on this playground that was constructed on top of an old pier across from the Jane Hotel, if you can mm-hmm. sort of imagine that. As you walk up and pass Gansafort Street, you'll see a hunk of land that's sticking out into the Hudson River around old piers 52 and 53. That is now a sanitation facility. Hold your nose as you walk north past that because there are plenty of garbage trucks coming out. But remember this spot because we're coming back here a little bit later in the show. Moving on a little bit further up to Pier 54 at 13th Street today. That is Pier 54. Big deal. We'll be talking about that a lot because it plays into the story of the Titanic and the Lusitania. And all that is left there today is just this shell. This sort of rusted like metal casing of where the pier used to be. But this represents the southernmost end of the Chelsea Piers complex. And it was from here all the way up to the end of today's Chelsea Piers was one large facility that just ran all the way up the street. If you walk from here toward today's Chelsea Piers, you're going to pass Pier 57, Pier 58, which again is just some wooden pilings out in the Hudson River. And then finally you get to the Chelsea Piers of today, Piers 59, 60, and 61. So essentially what you're saying is that the piers that we're about to talk about are in various states of preservation and decay. Many of them barely there, others redesigned and restyled for completely different purposes. That's right. Well, some of them have actually just disappeared. (laughs) Yeah, disappeared. But 200 years ago, this area was nothing, was literally the front yard of an elaborate mansion of Clement Clark Moore, the old Chelsea mansion, right? That's right. And in fact, he gave his apple orchard to the Episcopal Church. And this would be roughly between 19th and 20th Street and 9th and 10th Avenue. I bring this up because 10th Avenue at that time was the shoreline of the Hudson River. Mm -hmm. So that was like waterfront Mm -hmm. property. Anybody who knows Chelsea today knows that, of course... 10th Avenue is not bordering the Hudson. Well, there was so much calm here in what you're describing, which would, of course, quickly be traded in for pure chaos. That's right, because in the 1860s, Chelsea would literally go west. It would <laughs> it would head out, filling up with landfill. We talk about this quite a bit in the Highline episodes and a variety of different shows. But part of this story is also the development of the Hudson River Railroad in the 1840s. As the city was coming up toward Chelsea, railroads were also bringing passengers down from the Hudson River Valley, uh, from the rest of the country, down the west side of Manhattan and into Chelsea as well. So there was a big boom in the industry around here because, of course, factories wanted to relocate around the railroad depots. In fact, around here became largely industrial by the mid-19th century. With factories and warehouses and such. 
And don't forget my favorite detail, Greg, is that trains would come from Chamber Street up Hudson, turn west, and then go up 10th Avenue to 34th Street at street mm. level. And they were led through the streets. So just imagine these giant trains going up 10th Avenue. They were led through the streets by a, quote, 10th Avenue cowboy who was, <laughs> um, he was blowing a horn. But, but anyway, at 34th, he, the train headed west one block to 11th Avenue and then was elevated up and took off out of the city. But just imagine the scene of chaos. So you have all of these factories opening up. You have boats that are starting to dock and ships that are docking higher and higher as the city is moving farther north. So increasingly, this area, which has been filled in with landfill, Mm -hmm. is now populating with warehouses, with factories, with new docks, with a 10th Avenue train, with a cowboy, with a horn, with everything. And not just the arrival of products, but of course, there would be outdoor markets that would be nearby here that would sell them right off the boat. Places such as the Washington Market and the Gansevoort Market. There's the Washington Market that's near today's Trade Center. But then there's also the The, new Washington Market. The West Washington Market. Right. Which would open in January of 1889 with 400 stands. Many of the the vendors were coming from uh, the market farther downtown. But now with the development of the slaughterhouses over in the Gansevoort Market area, On top of everything else, you had cattle and other animals coming in on these trains being slaughtered. And that was open well into the 20th century. In fact, in 1929, the New York Times said of this market, quote, Here is the barnyard of New York, to be known at the first turn by its chorus of cackles and quacks. (laughs) Um, So just to look overhead at this whole place, absolute chaos, the center of industry, the center of wholesale markets. And people buying direct because New York was still a town where you would go to the market perhaps daily to buy your produce. So thus a a buzz of thousands of people coming and going, lots of street traffic. And then, believe it or not, here along the waterfront, you have passenger boats. Well, you have all sorts of boats. You have cargo boats as well, but we're going to focus on the rise of passenger ocean travel. I mean, today, when we think about it, it's so different than it was 150 years ago. When you do these festival cruises, they're, you know... Oh, you said that with such disdain. <laughs> but they're, but they're, it's pleasure. Like You're on the boat for pleasure. You may go somewhere, of course. You're mm-hmm. going to different places. But the, the ride itself is associated with vacations, not necessarily as a means of getting places. Although the, the Cunard line, which I'll mention later does have a transatlantic lines that still operates today. Well, when I think of taking a ship across the ocean to Europe, for example, it sounds very luxurious. But over like 150 years ago, shipping was not even considered customarily for passengers. It was primarily associated with industry and discovery and conquest and war. But as a method of conveyance, of conveying people, it was very hard going for really like until the mid-19th century. In fact, it had scarcely improved since the days of the Mayflower. So they weren't primarily focused on the comforts of the passengers. No, people were like basically stowed aboard mail ships. I mean, you could buy passage onto boats that were already going places. And what what years are we talking so about here? This is a, the mid-19th century. So... Obviously, what changes everything is the advent of steam power, which affected not just the railroad, but traveling across the ocean. The earliest passenger steamships formed in the 1840s, and leading the way was a company owned by a British shipping mogul by the name of Samuel Cunard. His Cunard line would dominate the oceans for over 100 years, still are with us yeah, today. they're still around. Yes. His first lines were the, called the Britannia lines. They were so successful because they did something that seems very obvious today, which is maintaining a regular schedule. Mm-hmm. So they you wouldn't could, just wait in port for enough passengers to get aboard. Before, and... it was very like, come what may. But Cunard could plan pretty much on-the-dot departures, at least departures. Arrivals is a different story. These were popular, but not very comfortable. And these operated from Europe to the U.S.? Yes, and several other destinations around the world, but mostly between Europe and the United States. They were not exactly comfortable. If we were to take the words of perhaps one of the most famous passengers in 1842, a man named Charles Dickens, who came to the U.S. to tour, 
he was so horribly scarred by his experience of traveling that he actually, to get back to England, he booked a clipper ship because he couldn't stand the rocky traveling on these steamships. Quote, anything so utterly and monstrously absurd as the size of our cabin, no gentleman of England who lives at home at sea can for a moment imagine. Words cannot express it. Thoughts cannot convey it. So if Charles wow. Dickens... Drama queen. <laughs> if he can't express it in words, who can? <laughs> but by the end of the 19th century, though, like by that point, it was all about cruising over the ocean in luxury. Right. Well, and this was all created by competition because more and more of these lines got into the business here. The boats got bigger. They had to get fancier. The rooms had to get more luxurious and the amenities had to uh, get more fantastic. So by the 1880s, you had several different lines, of course, that were very popular. The two biggest being the Cunard lines and the White Star lines. Now, here's a little fun game. So if you're going through, you know, as we are wont to do, like pictures of old 19th century ships. Oh, yeah. And you want to figure out what's the difference between a Cunard boat and a White Star boat. Well, the Cunard boats, the Lusitania, the Mauritania, the Aquitania, the Umbria, the Carpathia, all have a IA, I-A at the end, right? Uh-huh. The White Star, the Olympic, the Republic, the Britannic, and the Titanic... And on and on and on and on. So they end with an IC. And so all these lines would actually have kind of themes in their ocean liner names. So you can kind of, uh, if you're looking through pictures and you can kind of suss out who owns which boat. So then we can infer that the Lusitania was... Owned by Cunard. And the Titanic. The White Star. And it goes down the line with these different steamship companies. Now, by the Gilded Age here, this is the ultimate sign of class to be able to say that you traveled to Europe on one of these ocean liners because the tickets on first class were very, very expensive. You know, the rooms were fitted with all the luxurious trappings of the day. Uh, The steamship industry was thriving so much and was so successful by the 1880s, 1890s There was actually a steamship row in Manhattan. So it would be around Bowling Green. It would be at the tip of Manhattan. Not surprising because that's where the piers emanate. Today, if you walk around the area, you can actually see the names of old steamship lines on the top of all the buildings, including Cunard and White Star. Well, so if they're docking at the tip of Manhattan, that also obviously brings to mind uh, Castle Clinton, um, Ellis Island, the immigrants passing right. through. Because they're also on the boat. Now, of course, there's, uh, there's steerage, there's other classes, and that is being filled, overfilled in many cases, by new arriving immigrants who had bought reduced ticket prices. And these boats would just pull up right here in Battery Park and, and everybody would disembark? No, no, not exactly. So the boat would pull into the harbor, but then an official from the immigration station, which you know was at Castle Garden and then, of course, later Ellis Island, they would board on a boat. They would do a general inspection just to see the number of people, if there were any like major diseases, the overall well-being of the passengers. Of all of the passengers. Of all of the passengers, yes. But, of course, mostly focused on those on the lower decks, who would then be taken from there, loaded onto tugs and barges, and then taken to the immigration station, would disembark at Castle Garden at the tip of Manhattan. The boats would then proceed to then dock around on the west side of the island or in the area of the piers of today's Chelsea Piers, and the wealthier passengers would then you know, disembark in style. And they would dock just around the corner and up the North River, up the Hudson River, because there was more space up there. Mm-hmm. They could accommodate larger ships the, the more north you got on the island. In fact, Cunard at that time already had the piers 53, 54, and 56 at this time by the 1890s. The further north you got up the island, they could accommodate larger piers, and there's more space in between them for these larger ships. And the ships would get bigger. So already, Cunard and White Star already had their own dedicated piers up along the west side here. But these were mixed in with all kinds of other piers, Everything. shorter piers, people owned private piers. It was a huge 
mess. And sometimes these ships would come in or cargo ships would come in and they wouldn't have any place to park at all. And they'd be stuck out in the harbor. Quite honestly, it was a fiasco at a certain point because it was every kind of thing was getting off boats, including these wealthy passengers who didn't appreciate, you know, having to share a pier with chickens or or slabs (laughs) of meat. Something had to be done by the 1890s. It was an absolute mess. And they had been talking about it for decades, all the way back into the 1860s and 70s. They were talking about how something needed to be done. The Waterfront Division was formed as a part of municipal government to sort of tackle this issue of how to regulate dock traffic. And not for nothing, one of the big reasons they needed to change things is because of competition from other cities like right. Boston and even or, com- or Brooklyn or Brooklyn. Yes. Brooklyn had lots of space for lots of huge piers. And they had new docks that had just opened over in Red Hook and they had new technology that they were using. Same thing in New Jersey. And there was so much corruption in the city at this time, Tammany Hall running the whole show, that they had this sort of messy situation where they knew that they had to do something. Otherwise, they were going to lose business in the most important shipping center in the country. But there was just so much money and so much, so many palms to be greased here. <laughs> there were so many opportunities to take bribes. It was irresistible to Tammany Hall. <laughs> So this dragged on for decades, and it really took a strong mayor to make something happen and enter into this story, Mayor George McClellan, who I know is one of your favorite mayors. I I think, well, first of all, he's mayor during a very opulent time in New York City history. Right. He was mayor from 1904 to 1909. And he is the son of a Civil War general and a man who ran for president of the United States, George B. McClellan Sr. You, in fact, have a great profile of this man on (laughs) the blog BoweryBoysHistory.com came in very handy when I was researching this part. <laughs> no, he's a, he's fascinating. He's a fascinating figure of the Gilded Age. And part of that is because so many of the things that he oversaw during his tenure as, as mayor, so many of the big construction projects are still with us today, and they're iconic. When you think about New York, you think about Grand Central Terminal. You think of the New York Public Library, the Williamsburg and Manhattan Bridges, Times Square. These were all things that were constructed at least partially or finished during his tenure, as was the opening of the IRT, the first line of the New York City subway, which opened in 1904. And we had a a big hoot in our subway show talking about how he literally drove the first subway for its inaugural trip. They couldn't couldn't pull him off the wheel. No, or rip his hands (laughs) off off of the control. So on top of all of these other things, he's also responsible, partially, for the construction of Chelsea Piers. Or pushing through through. this project, which was called the Chelsea Section Improvement. Although when it would open in 1910, because of course it took nearly 10 years to get this thing constructed, he was no longer going to be mayor. He was replaced uh, in 1910 by Mayor Gaynor. During his tenure, though, this construction went up. There were nine large piers. The head house of the piers were designed by Warren and Wetmore. And this is essentially one large building that ran the whole area of all of the piers, but it was one front, a frontage building, essentially. Right, a, a giant facade made out of brick and stonework. Beautiful building to look at. And when you look up old photos, and you'll, I'm sure, have lots mm-hmm. of photos on the blog, you see this this massive structure, and it's about as high as today's Chelsea Pier building that's there. I think that's sort of built in the same like four scale. To five, four to five stories, something like that. And that front building, that head house, would house a lot of the offices. And imagine what else was needed inside. You you had to have offices, but also inspection areas, waiting rooms, all kinds of other facilities. Well, the, yeah, the waiting rooms is a kind of, of an important feature of this, if, because before it was literally you were just hanging out at the dock with your bags and your valet. Right. It ran from basically where today's sanitation facility is, where those garbage trucks are, at about Little West 12th Street, Gansevoort, right there all the way up to what is today Pier 62, the northern end of the Chelsea Pier structure. And you can see, if you're standing at today's uh, sanitation facility and you're looking, you'll see the corner of the stone facade. And you can also see that it's a straight shot all the way up to 23rd Street. That is the original Chelsea Piers. Now, one strike that Manhattan had uh, compared to, like, say, Southampton in England is the fact that they had a lot more space to space out these piers. So the boats could actually dock 
lengthwise. So say oh. if you remember the movie Titanic when they're all and Kate Winslet's going up in the boat, it's in lengthwise. You can't do that in Manhattan. There's too many boats here. So the boats are kind of going in like nose first. But right. as a result of that, they could build the boats larger and larger and could accommodate that. Our boats were sticking out further and further in the water the bigger they got. Our boats. I like our that. Boats. Yes. Our <laughs> boats were, and our boats needed a larger dock. Yeah. Let's just face it. The problem was, though, that these docks needed to be 925 feet long, right? Mm-hmm. They'd stick out into the Hudson River, 925 feet, but that passed the government's pier headline. Basically, it limited the size of the docks so that other boats and vessels could move around them. Yeah, you needed clearance for a certain number of boats that were that needed to go through that, that were sort of federal, that were emergency vehicles. Well, for, for naval ships. So how were they going to do this? They, they literally could not extend these docks 925 feet without passing the line, but yet they needed to build these. And the government was not giving them any permission to go beyond that line at this time, anyway. So they saw this unique solution, which was to remove a chunk of land from Manhattan, in this case, remove... 13th Avenue so that they could actually build more river into the island. Okay, so back up just a second, because remove 13th Avenue. So, I mean, most of us didn't realize that there ever was a 13th Avenue. Yes, indeed. I am here to tell you that there was and still is a little bit of a 13th Avenue. And it's very confusing And we'll have to put a photo of this Mm -hmm. up because it shows up in early maps. But it basically goes from around 12th Street today, shoots out in the river, and connects up to about 23rd Street. If you look at a map, you can sort of envision what this would have looked like because it is kind of a, a straight shot. And you can see where they cut into the island to make room to accommodate these piers. But this land had once been made of landfill many, many decades before, and now they had to take it back. That's right. So 13th Avenue ran from about today's 12th Street to 29th Street along the water. Now at 29th Street, it connected into 12th Avenue. I know that this is confusing because <laughs> there's also an 11th Avenue sure, in sure, there sure. that kind of starts around 23rd Street. But, but, but you don't need but to worry about it because they took it away. It's gone. Well, most of it's gone. Most of it. Right, because in order to just erase this whole chunk of the island, they needed to buy and then condemn and rip down all the buildings that were there. And they were able to do most of that except for the building that was the New West Washington Market because it was very active and very much not uh, going to get ripped down because it had also just opened in the 1880s. I think it was even – it was an innovative structure. It it had new refrigeration techniques. Which was a huge deal, right. So they couldn't take that away. No, they were very proud of those refrigerators, and they were a vital aspect of the meat market. So the meat market would stay in place, and they would cut in right after the meat market. Today, if you're going along the piers at Gansaford Street, back at that piece of land that sticks out into the Hudson that today houses the sanitation facility with all the garbage trucks mm-hmm. lined up, that is actually the last remaining remnant of 13th Avenue. But all that to say, with the removal of 13th Avenue, they were able to put these elongated piers and then build this elaborate Beaux-Arts structure over it that became Chelsea Piers. That's right. And it, the piers were actually finished before the buildings. The piers opened in 1906, and the, the liners started using them mm-hmm. almost immediately. The whole thing cost about $25 million to construct, which is obviously a huge sum. And the city ran it, which is very notable, but they leased out those piers to these giant ocean liners who would pay handsomely for those pier leases. They were not public. You couldn't just like pull up in your own uh, vessel and dock at one of these piers. Well, later they would take the same kind of model and use it for modern airports. Exactly. And that's a great point because really the Chelsea Piers at this moment, when they opened in February of 1910, really amounted to something like today's airports, a big new airport opening, because this is where people were coming to and leaving through the city. And we'll get into this golden era of the ocean liners, After this break, in the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, 
Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And now, back to the show. So you have your steamer trunks all packed. Oh, you got yeah. all of your luggage there. You, know, you walked into the entrance of the Grand Chelsea Piers here. Because now here, in the beginning of the 20th century, we are in the golden age of the ocean liner, of transatlantic ocean travel. It is the most luxurious and most lucrative, at least during peacetime here, industry in America. This Chelsea Pier structure did indeed, at least at the beginning, at least when it started, accommodate more ships and more efficiently than ever. The industry, of course, was changing. It was already changing even before the piers were built. Bringing in our friend J.P. Morgan, John Pierpont Morgan, mm-hmm. um, who, being a Morgan, of course, saw a possibility of a veritable monopoly that he could create for ocean liners, for sea travel. Why not? They had the monopolies <laughs> on the railroad, on yeah, every Light rail, everything. It's like, let's control the entirety of sea travel to the United States. One of the things that sort of egged him on here actually happened in 1902 when the Cunard Line received funding from the British government to build state-of-the-art vessels, like the biggest boats ever, but boats that could be equipped for war. So and I'm sorry this was what which year? There was a 1902. Okay. So just a few years later by 1906 was the launch of the Mauritania and the Lusitania, mm-hmm. both of which would come to New York Harbor and would dock here at Chelsea Piers dozens of times. So Morgan decided, well, they're getting all this government money, so we have to sort of redouble our efforts and create a monopoly, or he tried to anyway. The company was called the International Mercantile Merchants Marine Company, say that five times fast, and it would gather all sorts of cargo and passenger concerns. It's very complicated, probably for another podcast (laughs) several years down the line, (laughs) But most notably of those companies was the White Star Line, was now part of, was sort of under Morgan, or at least they would be partnered together. So these were the two main competitors, the White Star and the Cunard? Right. And Morgan had his hand a little bit into White Star here, Mm -hmm. funding their efforts here. So naturally, they had to create large boats themselves that could compete and rival these boats of Cunard. The three largest boats of his line would be the RSS Olympic, the RSS Britannic, and of course, the RSS Titanic. Now, the Olympic was so large, it was actually larger than than the piers at the brand new Chelsea Piers. Like, they were already going to have this problem of... Even they had built this large piers, now the boats were getting even larger. And already. this is almost immediately after... Almost immediately the after. ...the piers had opened. So, but they got permission... Maybe it was Morgan. I'm not quite sure. They got permission to extend the pier another 100 feet as a temporary measure, that they would have to remove the 100 feet if there was some sort of emergency. And they did so essentially after Boston basically stepped in and said, well, we could just do this up here. Why aren't you coming to Boston? So New York really put on the pressure and actually did get them to have this temporary order. The Olympic would arrive at Pier 59, which okay. is the one at part eight, of today's Chelsea Pier. Yes, Pier. which would arrive at 18th Street, would arrive from Saint Southampton on June 14th, 1911. Its sister ship would come along just a few months later, the Titanic. Well, it left Southampton on April 10th, 1912. Also destined for Pier 59, 
Four days later, however, late in the evening, the Titanic struck an iceberg and sank. Between 1,400 and 1,600 people, most third-class passengers perished in that disaster, including many notable New York figures of the day. The survivors of the Titanic disaster were picked up by the Carpathia, which is the Cunard line, and were eventually taken into New York Chelsea Piers, but they disembarked at a Cunard Pier, obviously not the White Star Pier, so it would be Pier 54, and that is the pier that's still there today, and so that is where the survivors of the Titanic disembarked. So when you say it's still there today, that's the Pier 54 with the rusty facade. So Morgan's little trust here is Mercantile Merchants Trust uh, would eventually fall apart in the 1910s here. Well, was that because of the disaster with the Titanic? Maybe partly, but actually the bigger tragedy that would happen that decade, which was World War One. This would affect all transatlantic travel, America remaining neutral during the early days of the war. England and Germany, the two principal sea powers of the day, of course, were not. I can see where transatlantic travel would obviously lose some of its allure. Who's going to head over to Europe in the middle of that? It's really dangerous. And not just, of course, for the individual, like your family. You want your family to be safe. But, you know, in terms of America, as the death of Americans in a war-related tragedy would create collateral damage, which would spawn the U.S. entry into the war. That, in fact, did eventually happen on the Lusitania, which was docked at Chelsea Piers and was docked at Pier 54. So the Lusitania, on May 1st, left Chelsea Piers to go across the Atlantic. Now, the amazing part of this, by the way, is that everyone knows there's a war going on. And everyone knows that the Lusitania is this gigantic ship. And it's going to go through waters that are filled with submarines. I mean, it's very dangerous. And the passengers knew it. In fact, many passengers received ominous telegrams the day that they boarded the Lusitania. One that said, quote, Have it on definite authority. The Lusitania is to be torpedoed. You had better cancel passage immediately. The New York Evening World said the following day, quote, Despite the warnings uttered on the docks, the telegrams, and the advertisement of the Imperial German Embassy printed in the morning newspapers warning Americans against traveling on British ships, the Lusitania had 1,500 passengers. This would be a big passenger list in times of peace, unquote. Unfortunately, just a few days later, on May 7th, Just a few hours from docking at Liverpool, they were torpedoed by a German U-boat. It was so sudden that most of the lifeboats could not be released, and it sank in under 30 minutes. 1,198 people died in those cold Irish waters, including 128 Americans. This would hasten the United States' entry into World War I less than two years later on April 2nd, 1917. So war did put a dent in passenger travel, but luckily, thankfully, the war was over by 1918. So things picked up in the industry, and things got a lot more glamorous, and the boats got a lot bigger and a lot safer, of course, by this time. As we roared into the 20s. But did you just say that they got bigger? They're getting so big, even line, larger. These luxury yes. liners we're talking about are getting even larger. And their focus, actually, is more on the luxury side of things because, you know, they were still bringing immigrants over to and fro across the Atlantic, but there were major restrictions after the war in 1924 with our horrifying quota laws that, as a result, limited the number of immigrants into the country. So they made a strategic shift into more luxurious <laughs> They had to. They, voyages. Could, they couldn't sell you know, tickets to you know, steerage passengers. So what they had to do two things. They had to aim for a new middle class and be like, hey, you can afford to travel and you know, live it up. But then make the extra fancy seats even more glamorous and more luxurious. And let us not forget that this is also during the period of prohibition. So people who are thirsty... <laughs> and wanted to get off to Europe where the champagne was freely Mm -hmm. flowing, could already kick off their party aboard a Cunard or White Star. So the amazing thing is Chelsea Piers then became an unusual destination for seeing celebrities 
actors, film stars, because they would all board these boats and have a press conference like on the dock or perhaps even on the boat itself. In our Rudolph Valentino episode, I remember on the blog actually putting pictures of him at Chelsea Piers uh, as he was going away to Europe on a glamorous vacation. So that was basically where you saw famous people, was at oh, Chelsea yeah. Piers. The, the silent film stars of the 20s. If you walk along their history wall today, if you walk mm-hmm. inside, I think it's between Piers 60 and 61, you see some photos of some starlets. I think Gloria Swanson has shown disembarking. This was indeed the heyday, but this the boat size, boats getting larger and larger, this would end up being a problem because you can't make the Chelsea Piers that much larger because they're permanent structures. And you can't take out any more land in Manhattan. (laughs) No, you can't take out 12th Avenue. New Jersey was building piers that were even larger and could accommodate massive ships. And the federal government was threatening to deny New York's permits because it was just getting crazy out of hand. You now had a company called the United States Line. Their most popular ship was called the Leviathan. It was a German ship that had been captured in war and massively refitted for glamorous, luxurious travel. It was too big. It couldn't fit in Chelsea Piers. So it couldn't even dock in New York? Could it even come to New York? Oh, no, it could come to New York, but it had to dock farther up the island, and it made its home on 44th Street. So this is already Mm -hmm. kind of a harbinger of what's going to be happening with these now piddly little docks here in Chelsea. (laughs) Well, and let's also not forget that right around the corner, unfortunately, we have the Great Depression. By 1936, in the dark days of the Depression, there were fewer than 500,000 passengers a year heading to Europe from the U.S. aboard these, these ships, whereas a decade earlier, there had been about a million passengers. So the travel was down about 50%, which is enormous, obviously dealing a huge blow to these companies and that economy, and also the various businesses that serve these concerns. Mm-hmm. And yet, the liners were still getting bigger. There were other liners, the RMS Queen Mary and the the SS Normandy, which were both a 1,000 feet long and could no longer fit into these Chelsea piers. So the city decided, in order to accommodate them, they had to build new piers. And in 1935, they opened the New York Passenger Ship Terminal, or the New York Cruise Terminal, farther uptown and midtown, roughly between 44th and 54th Street. And unlike the Chelsea Piers, they are still in operation and can still receive passenger ships. Indeed they do. But the Chelsea Piers were still able to accommodate some ships, just not the really, really long ones. A highlight in the 30s was the departure of the 1936 Olympic team, which included Jesse Owens as they set off for Berlin, I also wanted to point out that just in front of the Chelsea Piers along West Street, from 1929 throughout the 1930s, was the construction of the West Side Elevated Highway, which ran along West Street and the Hudson River and would join into what is today's Henry Hudson Parkway. This was an ugly and unloved and badly of, made, yes. Badly made mm-hmm. piece of infrastructure that was a part of the cityscape for many decades, and it really deserves its own show because it's fascinating. It's no longer there, and yet at the same time, it was ahead of its time. It set the standard for basically super highways mm-hmm. and highways that would, that would zip through American cities and be constructed over the course of the next several decades. And it was trying to solve a problem, how to move automobiles and trucks through this neighborhood that was already congested with passengers and cargo heading into the ships and also trains going up and down the road. So that's underway as well. How were the piers affected then by the Second World War? Well, troops would take off for the war from the docks of the Chelsea Piers. And then following the war, you know, with the opening of the new terminal up in Midtown, the Chelsea Piers remained open, but were mostly serving cargo needs in the 1950s and 1960s. The W.R. Grayson Company and the United States Line, which you mentioned, operated out of Pier 54. All these things happened at Pier 54 <laughs> um, before they would relocate to New Jersey in 1967. Uh-huh. So, so by the 60s, the Chelsea Piers had become kind of obsolete. They hadn't just fallen out of fashion. They were just no longer useful. No, they desperately tried to make them relevant with the cargo and container ships and it required a $25 million renovation to turn it into a cargo terminal, but 
it eventually just didn't work. The United States lines pulled out and... Not to mention, by the end of the 1950s, there was daily jet service to Europe, which represented a sea change in the <laughs> in the way that Americans would think about traveling to Europe, because why take many, many days to get there and go through the choppy ocean when you could just fly there in a fraction of the time? Well, it's interesting you say that, because in the 1970s, and they're coming up with ways to use these now abandoned buildings, they thought they could use it as a cargo hold for JFK Airport. There was even an intriguing idea in 1975, this artist, an abstract expressionist artist named Mark D. Severo, was trying to look for a place to have a sculpture garden. And they all identified the Chelsea Piers as being the ideal place for this beautiful outdoor sculpture garden. Of course, it's 1970s. That didn't happen. But 10 years later, he would open the Socrates sculpture garden out in Astoria. Very cool. So it has that connection. But when I think of the piers in the 1970s, I'm not thinking about <laughs> sculpture. No. Um, they're all going through very curious fates at this time. Of course, down in the village, in lower Manhattan, the, the piers would be utilized in more creative ways by, say, the gay community. And in particular, the Christopher Street piers um, would be a gathering place, um, you know, in the daytime. And, and at the, night, and it would be more for cruising. Cruising, Yes. The West Side Elevated Highway here, this poorly constructed piece of work, it literally fell apart. I think actually a car fell through the fell highway. Through it. it. I mean, it fell apart, and then they had to shut it down, and so, and then eventually tore it down. They were going to replace it with this elaborate six-lane, four-point-two-mile highway that would essentially go underground through a landfill extension under the Hudson River or all around this area and would have torn out pretty much all of the buildings and most of the piers of this area. I won't get into the, all the details, but essentially this plan was scrapped by 1985. And this is the plan called Westway? Westway, right. It was going to be the biggest construction project that New York had seen in decades. Sort of like Boston's Big Dig. Exactly like the Big Dig. It was unfortunately killed off by a circuit judge who blocked the building permit Forget this, the protection of Hudson River striped bass, which would have become endangered had the construction gone through. Sounds fishy. Yeah, I think there was a little bit more going on, but we like to blame it on the striped bass. The rehabilitation of the piers finally came in 1994, but it came from private interests. An investor by the name of Roland Betts bought the northern portion of Chelsea Piers and turned it oddly enough, into a place for sports. Now, when you say the northern portion, so it's it's these three or four piers. The present Chelsea Piers complex today, right. So he was the owner of the Texas Rangers baseball team, an avid hockey player and wealthy, and his daughter was into ice skating. And so he identified one of these piers as an ideal place to build a new ice skating rink. And, but New York didn't have good year-round ice skating back in the 90s, if you recall. If you were an ice skater, Mom, right. I don't remember if you were. Uh, I had a terrible <laughs> time in the 90s looking for a place to skate in July. But when he was told that they would only be considered for, you know, for development as a group of piers, then he brought in some more investors and they designed the Chelsea Piers Sporting Complex, a one7 million square feet of sports heaven if you're into sports was that a quote <laughs> no 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 that's uh that's that's from that's you that's me because it's filled, sports heaven it's got everything in there if you're it's got a bowling alley it's got golfing it's got a driving range uh, i think what's incredible are all the various places for like gymnasts to perform there's hockey there's a private marina there is an ice skating rink there's two ice skating rinks and on top of that, there's a bunch of event spaces for events that I don't think I'll be invited to. And then there's some TV and film production studios in here as well. I mean, it's really quite a large space. So they, they actually shoot movies and TV shows at the Chelsea Piers. Yeah. they. Let's just say a great many Law & Order episodes have been filmed here at Chelsea Piers. But that's the northern section of Chelsea Piers. What was the fate of those southern piers? Well, part of it was incorporated into the Hudson River Park Plan, which 
basically unites the waterfront here along the edge of the island, except for, of course, up where the passenger terminal is in Midtown and here at the Chelsea Piers because it's a private enterprise. And so when you approach it, you're very aware of the fact that it's not incorporated into the rest of the cityscape here. Right, because if you're cycling along the Hudson River Greenway, you feel embraced by those public mm-hmm. spaces and those different docks that really start much farther downtown, mm-hmm. but continue all the way up the west side. But it does feel, yeah, as you go around Chelsea Piers, like you're not necessarily invited in unless you're paying. I mean, I don't have a problem with the complex itself. It's kind of amazing, actually, to have premier sporting facilities for athletes. And who can complain about skating rinks and bowling alleys? Nobody. We need more of those. Yes. Um, But from the street, that hideous blue front okay it's just not pleasant to look at it's an eyesore it kind of looks like a super walmart uh, which you know (laughs) which i mean i don't mind saying because i like what's inside of it but it's just it's kind of unsightly as you approach it so we should encourage the powers that be at chelsea piers to restore the old worn and wet more facades of the original chelsea piers that's a great idea tom it's not probably going to happen But if you do want to recall the look of the old Chelsea Piers and maybe like get a little misty, I would say go down to Pier 54 because that old rusty pier is still there. This was, of course, was the home of the Lusitania and the fateful place where the survivors of the Titanic disembarked. It's still it's still a beautiful, rusted, corroded thing. It's open often for a lot of live events. During the 90s, of course, they used to have the Wigstock Drag Festival there. Just a few years ago, I saw the illusionist David Blaine uh, do a showy little magic stunt involving electricity. And some of you may remember in 2005, they turned it into a, quote, nomadic museum for the photography of Gregory Colbert, his spectacular nature photography with lots of elephants and things. And if you do visit, be sure to pause in front of that rusted frame that stands up where the where the headhouse was and see if you can pick out the faded paint that spells out Cunard and White Star lines. So we complete our voyage through the history of Chelsea Piers and the Age of the Ocean Liner. Be sure to check out the blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, to see plenty of photographs because mm-hmm. there are lots of pictures of the beautiful vessels pulling in here and the the beautiful piers and the starlets who were Mm -hmm. disembarking here. I want to plug a book that I just finished that some of you may have read because he's a popular author. Eric Larson's new book, Dead Wake, The Last Crossing of the Lusitania. I'm going to have a book review of this on the blog. But if you want to kind of relive the last moments of this very tragic event, very breathlessly told in this book... So after you check out our blog, BarryBoysHistory.com, also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. If you've already become a patron of the show at Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys, I will be uploading special outtakes that we weren't able to use because we go really long when we're recording this show. I'm looking at the screen right now. It says an hour and 34 minutes. And Greg, this show will not no. end up being an hour and 34 minutes. No. So some things will be cut out and those will be available um, as special little treats. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. to family vacations there are a million different trips you can take you can get your own trip to texas or if you prefer a vacation from your family you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma trip to texas so go to traveltexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to texas that matters yours yours 